This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Now feeling confident, proud of me and the freedom I've won. Now feeling happy, joyful, filled with laughter. Feeling peace, contentment, and love. Now I just live in joy, peace, and happiness. Centered and calm as I go about my life being me. A healing journey is about both letting go and welcoming. It's about letting go of thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and even people that are not serving you. It's about welcoming and incorporating thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and people that will empower, enrich, and energize your life. Valeria Telles interviews Denise Bossart, the author of Thriving After Sexual Abuse, Break Your Bondage to the Past and Live a Life You Love. Denise Bossart is a poet and an award-winning writer, photographer, and artist. Denise is a certified meditation facilitator and contemplative arts teacher. She is an information technology IT professional working for a large urban school district. Denise holds a BA in chemistry, an MS in computer science, and a PhD in developmental neuroscience. And she is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Denise spent her adulthood healing herself from the traumatic impact the sexual abuse had on her life. She is not a mental health professional. She is a thriver who has traveled a healing journey and is able to share a personal, guided experience for readers to find and engage in their own journey to healing, to become thrivers. Her self-published book, Glamorous, was a bronze medalist in 2019's The Wishing Shelf Book Awards in Adult Fiction, and her success with Glamorous earned her membership into the Horror Writers Association and the International Thriller Writers. Denise is also a member of the Nonfiction Authors Association and the Texas Association of Authors. Denise lives in Texas with her husband, Randy, and their literary cat, Safira. Meet Denise at thrivingaftersexualabusebook.com. Here's the interview with Denise Bossart. In your own words, who is Denise Bossart? I would share that I am creative, I am curious, I'm a lifelong learner, and of course there's the description of what I do, which is I'm an IT professional working for a large urban school district, but I really am a creative artist, writing and art and photography, and I like to always learn and explore new ways of expressing myself. I love that. That's one of the healing methods that you mentioned in your book, Thriving After Sexual Abuse. So I love that section. I love everything about your book, really, because all of these methods, they have been true to me. I tried pretty much everything, too. And yeah, the last one that I'm 
kind of try now, which seems to be like throughout the whole process is spirituality. Going back to the idea that unconditional love is behind all this. <laughs> so my second question to you is about life itself. What do you think this is? I really think that we are here to learn, learn about ourselves, learn about why we're here, learn about how to relate and support other people. And it's a, a journey of love and expression that we're here to explore what it is to be fully human and discover for each of us what that means for our own individual unique self. When I say unconditional love, what comes to mind, Denise, for you? when those words are put together, unconditional love. To me, that phrase means that there is the love that isn't based on earning. You don't have to earn that love. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be or act a certain way. That there's nothing to do to receive. That the, the unconditional love is just given because you're alive and a human being. I usually think about also all these facets of life and the good and the bad, ups and downs. And I tend to kind of remember that unconditional love and accept everything without separation, without judgment. Do you think I'm going too far with that, <laughs> with that idea? <laughs> I think that's a great aspiration. It, it's certainly something that takes work and practice yes, to, yes. to have that in your life. But I think it's a True. wonderful aspiration that inevitably there's going to be ups and downs and highs on those. That's just a part of being a human being. But how we respond to that, that whatever happens in our lives, we can try to find equanimity and a peace within all of those things that are happening to us and appreciate that behind all of that is our ability to be this unique self and to express in a way that we want to and show up in a way we, that we want that's not directly dependent on what happens to us. We define who we are and how we live in the world. Yes, yes. Uh, a billion times to that. I love the mantra in the opening of your book, I am mantra. I'll be asking you to read that for me um, or for us in a minute. Before that, um, what is your idea of balance, of living a balanced life? I think that all of us have various facets of our life that we have to deal with. Um, we have to earn a living. We have families. We have friends. We have our own personal time. And for me, balance means that we don't sacrifice any of those things for focusing solely on one thing, that we really have to appreciate our own self-care and taking care of ourselves and being good to ourselves so that we have the resilience and resources to share with others and take that out into our world. And there are things that have to be done to get through life, but we need to be able to balance and see things in perspective so that nothing takes all of our energy and concentration to, and our focus, that we make sure that we keep a bigger picture of what's important in our life and where we put our energy. Yeah, that's uh, another challenging practice, isn't it? Not to focus too much on one area of our lives. Most of us tend to do that, especially at a young age work first, and then we just forget about personal life, family. And with that in mind, what insights have you gained from the events in 2020? What has changed for you? I think with everything that's happened in 2020, that it's brought home sort of a vulnerability that we all have, a vulnerability to things that 
these big things that could happen to society in general can actually have a very personal impact for us. And really, for me, I had to kind of reevaluate how I felt in the world. Um, is the world a safe place? How do I take care of myself in the world? How do I take care of other people that I care about in, in this world? And the focus of being more of taking care of my family, taking care of my friends and being there to support and getting out of the old ways of doing things. We certainly have had to learn new ways to connect and communicate and keep uh, connected with each other to support each other. So there's a lot of lessons learned about how to make sure that the things that are important to me don't get lost and overcome by the fear and the anxiety and focus on the positives and, and making sure that things that are important to me, I keep focusing on those and supporting those. It has been a lesson. I have learned those kinds of lessons too, for sure, especially when it comes to fear, not having it to overwhelm us because fear, it's an interesting aspect of the mind, of living, of being a human. Um, have you found, or do you believe in becoming fearless? Some people do talk about that. Well, I think that our biological systems are geared to have a fear response to a lot of things. It's just a part of our evolution and our biology. But to me, it's not about being fearless. It's just about recognizing when fear arises and not letting it dominate how you respond and live. Don't let it control your life. Recognize that it's part of your life, but it can come and go kind of like a cloud in the sky. Recognize that, okay, here's my biological being <laughs> showing up and saying, oh, adrenaline's flowing. There's a fear response, but okay, mm -hmm. 90 seconds later, I let that emotional response go as much as I can. And, and seeing it not as something to get caught up in, but it's, it's information. If I'm having a fear response, can I think about what is it that is causing this to arise? What can I find out with curiosity about what I'm fearful of? And then seeing how I can deal with what's behind the fear rather than focusing on the fear itself. It seems like it's a timing thing. So breathing and just um, giving ourselves time, pausing, it's that pause really. Yeah, giving yourself kind of space mentally, emotionally, fear is contracting. It's a very yeah. contracting emotion. And right. if we can create space bodily mm -hmm. by breathing and, and being present and giving that pause, like you mentioned, for mentally, right. we can create this physical, emotional, mental space to be able to take that step back from the fear. So I have a few more of these uh, warm-up questions for you, the opening questions. The next one relates to what you do in your book, healing, but a general question. What is healing to you and what are some of the misconceptions about healing? So healing to me, first off, I would say everybody's definition of healing is going to be different and very personal. Healing to me is finding ways to build my resilience, to learn about self-care and incorporate self-care as, as a regular part of my life every day, if at all possible. And healing means being able to not be rocked off my feet at the triggers or the bad things that happen in life that show up, that I can move into a space of resilience and strength and stability and balance that I cannot 
always be caught up in the negative. I can have that be a part of the life I live, but I can also embrace and bring in to my life more of the positive as well. So it's a process and it's actually sort of an attitude and approach to life that I think that people can bring that it's just a way of moving beyond the past, being present and bringing more good things into your life with this, this approach to living. When you speak of approach, I think about um, how do we get to learn them? Is this something that it's a shift of perspective, um, an attitude, is something that can only be learned, can be taught, or can we naturally kind of access that, which I call inner wisdom? I think it's a combination for sure, at least in my experience. I I think we all have this inner wisdom of what is good for us as an individual, what's healthy, healing, supportive. And part of that is slowing down enough and being quiet enough to hear that wisdom. (laughs) We are so busy with our phones and televisions and all the modern technology that we don't give this pause and this space and this quiet to be able to really hear what our inner wisdom can share with us. But even the with that inner wisdom, you can always grow and expand that. And so I think there's a component of learning for yourself, exploring, reading, watching videos, listening to to podcasts like yours, whatever it is that you can tap into things. Because I, like I said at the beginning, I'm a continuous lifelong learner. I love learning new things because I can always find more things to help expand my awareness and my capabilities. So it's both. We have that inner wisdom. If you can slow down and, and listen to it and tap into to that intuition. And it's also something you can enhance through your own efforts. Do you see healing somehow as a destination that one day will be healed? <laughs> ED? I, I talk about this a lot when I'm talking to people about it, you know, because healing, we all wish it was that easy, you know, yeah. take a pill, do this right. practice for 30 days and you're healed magically. Right. But unfortunately, you know, bad news and good news, uh, it, it's not that simple. You can't get on the Audubon, drive 200 miles and ask the hour and reach the destination healed, right? It just doesn't work that way. Healing's not linear. It's uh, back and forth, forward and backwards. I kind of actually talk about it in an idea of a spiral that you're coming back to situations again and again, because that's how things show up in your life till you learn that lesson. But it's a spiral because each time you come around to that, you're further up in your resilience, your skills, your experience, um, what you've learned on how to handle these things. So I don't think that healing is ever done. Like I said, I I think that there's a huge jump that you can do, that you can release the past, learn to be present, learn to be joyful. And there's that huge jump of healing that gets you to a point where you're really enjoying your life. But I like to keep things open that I can continue to explore and heal ever more. So am I in a place in my life that I feel I'm thriving and I love what I'm doing? Absolutely. Do I think there's more opportunity to heal? continuously from here, just like any other human being that never suffered the trauma I did? Absolutely. So I think that that, that you can th- might think of it in two phases if you're a trauma survivor. First is really overcoming that impact the trauma has and how it's dedicating your energy and effort to responding to it. And there can be a shift so that you move away from that and are focusing more on who you are now and who you want to be. But I would leave the door open for continuous healing after that and not shut yourself away from great experiences you may have that will enrich your life going forward. When you talk about the spiral in the healing process or the healing journey and also not being linear, that 
makes me think about conversations I had with guests about the experience of grieving. Mm. It seems to be similar somehow, or the, the right? Yeah, that's mm. that's interesting because that, that I can see that being true. You know, that there's sort of the traditional viewpoint of the stages of healing and the stages of grief and what you go through, but the more that I've learned about more recent research is understanding that people, again, kind of revisit these stages as they go along with less impact that each stage would have on them. So I, I definitely appreciate your pointing out the the parallel there that I, I think it's um, it's unfair to people to set an expectation that it is linear. It's one, two, three, and then you're done. Um, or four, five, how many f- ever phases you want to define. But to let them know that it's okay if things come back and trigger you. It may be down the road, some a song comes up you haven't heard in years, and it reminds you of something or a smell or someone who looks like someone. And to set people up to think that it's abnormal to have grief or um, these, these triggering uh, feelings coming up, that's a little unfair to people. I, I think it's just part of human nature that we're going to remember stuff and things are going to remind us. And and if you can look at it from a grief perspective, you can look at it, there's an opportunity to remember that, that loved one that you no longer have and an appreciation of what they brought to your life. If you can do that and not get so caught up in the, the loss of that person. It's, it's a huge challenge to do that. But, you know, from an abuse perspective, can I have an appreciation for the fact that I was this strong individual that made it through what I had to go through? Maybe I had some dysfunctional responses to that because at the time that's all I knew. But thank you for those helpful responses at the time. I no longer need you. I'm now going to focus on positive responses. And sometimes I'm going to be flipped back by something that comes up. But then I'm going to be in a place where I can say, oh, okay, this is happening. I appreciate that we're trying to go backwards, but I'm not going backwards. I'm going forwards. It really sounds to me like a process of letting go, but at the same time holding on. So because you're letting go of the things that no longer serves us or of what happened. So it's kind of a transformational process, which has a lot to do with this letting go, but at the same time, yeah, holding on to something. It, it might be the, the holding on to whatever it is that was that brings back the memories in these spirals. Like in my case, I don't have any of those memories anymore, which seems like I have finally let go of all of them. But I do dream about them sometimes, which at a different level, the subconscious level, it's, they're still there. Something's mm-hmm. still holding on to them. Yeah, and I, I like what you said about letting go and holding on this sort of dynamic balance there that certainly we we'll want to through self-reflection and work, understand what is what you don't need anymore that you do want to release. But also looking at, like I said, the positive things, like I was a strong person. There was this undying hope for something better. There was this drive and desire to improve. Let me connect with those things and enrich those and build those up and hold lightly or release the things that no longer serve me. So it is this dance of, of, purposefully, if you can, recognizing what to let go, embracing what you want to hold on to. Oh, I have two more questions for you. How do you define freedom these days? What is to be free to you? Free to me is not defined by external things. 
Uh, obviously, we've had a challenge to that version of freedom with all, everything that's happened with the pandemic. You know, it, it feels like freedom's been taken away from us in so many ways because of external circumstances. But for me, freedom is in my mind and in my heart mm-hmm. that I am not limiting myself. I'm not letting other people limit me by buying into what they may be telling me and believing stories that aren't true for my authentic self, that I'm going to be able to let my mind explore and experience what it will in in a very healthy, supportive way, and my heart to be open and vulnerable and compassionate, that I'm not going to let others put a box around me of what I should be doing, how I should be doing it, who I should be. I'm going to define that. Mm -hmm. And if I can be the one who's defining what freedom means and how I can express freedom in my mind and heart and body, then then I define my own freedom. Yes, a billion times. Yes, I love that. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and my last warm up question is, which I think it's a fun question. What do you love most about being in a human body? And also, what has been the greatest challenges for you in being in a human body? Human body. Well, I think that it's just so much potential for what, as, again, I just am a learner. I'm curious and creative. I, I, I have so many things that I can learn and experience, even if it I can't do it in person. We can experience it through watching other people online. Yeah. I can include those experiences in my life. And the fact that we have this ability to use our minds and, and our hearts to learn things, connect with other people, share experiences. That's the beauty of the human body is this potential and how we can use it. And what's limiting about the human body to me, it's more the, the physicality, you know, there's, there's aches and pains and things that you do yeah. have to deal with every day, but trying to be kind to our bodies, to treat our bodies well, that they're, part of our being in this world. So let's do our best through physical exercise and yoga and things to support it. But it, it's kind of a pain that your body breaks <laughs> down, you know, but that's part of being human. That's part of the, this body existence. And, and mm-hmm. that's a drag. But in the meantime, there's a <laughs> lot of really fun things about being a human being that you can enjoy. So you wrote the book, Thriving After Sexual Abuse, Break Your Bondage to the Past and Live a Life You Love. So my main question, the initial question about the book is, what was the main intention of writing your book? I didn't want to just write a memoir. And part of that was because I felt that there was quite a few people who were writing books about their abuse and it kind of stopped once the abuse ended um, or they became an adult, whatever, you know, there wasn't really a lot of focus on what I did to heal. And when I was trying to start my healing journey, there were no blueprint books out there of how to start or what to do. And I kind of figured it out on my own. And I thought, well, I don't have a lot of memories of my childhood abuse Uh, typical traumatic brain. You don't remember a lot. And I certainly did not have a way to put the abuse memories in context with the rest of the timeline and and memories of my childhood. It just couldn't happen. So a memoir is out of the question for me, really, in addition to not wanting to do that kind of book personally. But I was able to do all these things for myself to help myself on my healing journey. And what really made me decide to write the book was when I learned about Dr. Larry Nassar and his abuse of hundreds of gymnasts, this one man impacting so many women. It broke my heart open. And I thought, you know what? 
they need help. And I could write a book for women like that. I could write about my healing journey. I'm really organized. I've written books before. I'm a good writer. I could do all of that. And I could share my story and guide people through the process of exploring things for themselves. And I could do something that could help other people. And that was what got me started writing. It's what kept me grinding through the difficulties of of writing about my story and just keeping in mind that this could help. And my husband was always 100% behind me and encouraging me. He even had planted the seed way back many years ago. when I had written some poetry about the abuse. And, and so it was great to have his support and encouragement. And as I started sharing the first drafts with people and editors, just giving that response, this could really help. I'm like, yes, this is what I want for this book is to give people a resource that I wish I had had that could guide me, be sort of like a mentor on a page to help figure out what I could try, what I could do to help myself heal. And so that was my intent was just give this out to people. And that's for survivors of any age, men and women. It's for supporters of survivors because it gives you great insight into what it's like to be a survivor and things that could help. And it's for the mental health professionals as a resource for them to share with their clients. I read the book and it's just incredibly, not just well written because you are a great writer, but it's formatted in a way that's very simple to read, simple Mm -hmm. to navigate through the information. And I see a lot of um, compassion. That's the word that comes to mind. There's a lot of compassion there and generosity too, Denise, spending that time to do something that is good for you and others. I love this idea that we can just kind of experience this life in such a way, doing things that are good for us and others at the same time. Why not? Yeah, right, right. Why not? That's part of what being human is all about. Can't we take advantage of both of those things? Yeah, yes, right. So talk to me about this movement of the dance uh, from a place of victimhood and then survivor and then thriver. I love the way you describe yourself, like you when you use that word, I love that. I talked to other people about it and I kind of don't like the word survivor for some reason. So thriver, thank you for yeah, saying that. a new word that I'm trying to get out in the vocabulary for Wonderful. people, certainly. And when I was growing up at that time, it was always victims of abuse, victims of abuse. And yes, that's I was that. I'm not denying that's what I am because you need to acknowledge that to be able to start your healing journey. But that was the language that was available. And that's such a crushing word you know, victim. And then the language shifted to survivor, which was a step forward. It was an ability to recognize the strength and resilience and how someone had come out of that experience. But I know what you say that you just don't like the word survivor. And I'll tell you why that may be true for you as it was for me, because survivor is always in reference to the trauma. I'm always defining myself as I say I'm a survivor, which is is fine. But for me, I'm, I'm asking people to think a little more beyond that, that yes, you're a survivor, but is that all you are? Because when you say you're a survivor, you're implying you're a survivor of something that you've experienced. And although that is a true statement, I think it defines us too too little, too small. And I don't want to just survive my life. You know, if you say it that way, I am 
I'm just surviving my life. Well, nobody wants that. I want to be a thriver. I want to thrive in my life and move to the next level, the next beyond surviving to actually dropping my my bondage to the past and be in a place where I'm joyful and, and loving the life I have. And so it's a transition to letting go of the past and being defined by the past, which to me is what survivor implies and the, the weight it carries to releasing that label and saying, I'm a thriver because I've moved beyond. So the mantra, you open the book with that beautiful mantra, I am, I am. Can you read that for me, Denise, please? I'm not so great in reading these things. Yeah, sure. So I I included this mantra because one of the practices that I had during the beginning of my healing journey in particular, but I continue now, it was finding affirmations that inspired me, phrases that inspired me. These days it would be memes that inspire you. But I put stickies on my mirror, literally. So every morning, every night, brushing teeth, I would read those and just bring in that positivity and that support. And when you say things that are in the the first person and in the present tense, it is so powerful. So that was what I wanted to share with the readers. So I am mantra. I am strong. I am beautiful. I am worthy of love. I am not responsible for what happened to me. I do not let the past define me. I define myself. Uh, And you are also a, um, you're an artist, you're a poet, um, the photography, you call contemplative uh, photography. So the end of your book, you have lots of poems and you have a beautiful one also that I'd love for you to read at the end. It's titled Change. That one caught my attention. So let's talk for a moment about the healing methods. There are so many amazing ones. And I would love, okay, way too many. So let me get in here more organized with my screen. In your book, you say starting a healing journey can be a terrifying thing to contemplate. Even though you are living a life filled with feelings of despair, worthlessness, or anger, asking yourself to make a shift to change can be overwhelming to consider. So talk to me for a moment about that. I think that it is really challenging to take that first step into healing, whatever that first step may be. For me, it was um, reaching out and finding a therapist, which I really strongly recommend to people as a first step to find a neutral person who's been trained to help you work through these things. But I think that people are afraid. They have so much shame. Survivors have so much shame about what happened to them. They may have convinced themselves they were to blame. Uh, so there's a lot of fear about opening up and sharing that because you anticipate and almost expect to be rejected. Um, personally deeply rejected because you are such a horrible worthless person and you just can't imagine people would understand and be supportive of that and so Mm -hmm. it's this fear of rejection is this fear of revealing this shameful event that happened to you that keeps people from moving forward and and also as human beings we naturally are afraid of change of any kind you know we have this resistance built into us to change and this is asking us to consider changing who we are and how we've defined ourselves, right? We've been defining ourselves as filled with shame and guilt and all these negative emotions. And 
it's scary to think of what might we define ourselves next. If I have to let go of this and I want to let go of it, what will I define myself with? And that's an unknown thing. We don't know what that world looks like on the other side of that. And that's scary to people to move into the unknown. So I think it's Mm -hmm. a lot of things that are barriers to people to do that. But I think it's once you take that first step, whatever it may be for you, joining the Me Too movement, writing about it social media, writing in a journal, getting your first uh, bit of help from professionals, doing some practices that are self-care, whatever it is, in acknowledgement to what had happened and how you want to move away from it. Once that door opens, each step is going to be easier. Mm-hmm. But that, I think, is the fear and the shame and the uh, anticipation of rejection that could reinforce every negative thing we think about ourselves. It's it's a real leap to be able to take that first step. Do you feel it's happening more? It's my impression that it is. I think so. I think that we've had a lot of examples publicly through the Me Too movement and, and other awarenesses around what has happened. People are starting to not treat it as the dark secret you have right. to keep locked in the closet and it's absolutely horrible to consider or even imagine speaking about. Now it's to the point that there's a lot more organizations and we have the um, Sexual Assault Awareness Month and Child Abuse Prevention Month. We have all these things that are raising awareness and helping people realize that they're not alone, that it's not their fault, and that they can find ways to share with other people or a therapist or some organization, some group, what happened to them so they can start healing. So I think it's really, for me personally, I've, I've been alive for a while, <laughs> and I've seen decades worth of change, right? right? And it's been tremendous amount of shift. Are we in the perfect place now for survivors to become thrivers? Not exactly, but where we've come from is such a huge step forward to uh, people recognizing and, and saying, okay, this has happened. People need resources to help them. And I, and we can be supporters of people when we hear their stories and can be there to listen and validate and, and acknowledge them as a person. You know, Because when someone shares those stories, they're not looking for you to validate their experience. Believe them that it happened. What they want to be validated is that they're a lovable human being that deserves joy. That's what they need you to help support. So opportunities are increasing all the time. And I think that we have a lot of growth left to do, but certainly we're in a, in a place socially that people feel that they have the right and the ability to speak up because we're seeing that from so many different places. Part four of your book, you say something that's very powerful to me. You say, no more secrets, no more fear. Yeah, and I, and I don't want to set the expectation for people that you have to join the MeToo movement publicly online. If that's what is your healing process, that's fine. If it's sharing with your family, if it's sharing with your friends, if it's sharing with the therapist, if it's sharing in a journal, getting it out in some form, whether it's written or with other people or more publicly, whatever makes sense for you and is safe for you to do, but getting it out to start letting that healing happen to those spaces um, inside of you that have been been I, I don't want to say damaged because that yeah. sounds like a permanent thing that yeah. have been injured let's say yeah. injured yeah. Yeah. and need healing any one of those steps from the very personal to the very public whatever works for you I encourage you to try that 
with some thought about, you know, if I do this, what's going to happen? Let me make sure I'm comfortable with, with what could happen. But even writing it down and expressing it, free, free conscious, stream of consciousness writing to get it out is going to be something that'll make a huge difference. And I encourage journaling in my book to, you know, ask, answer the questions I have in my book. But it's a great tool because as you progress on your journey, you may get to a point where you feel stuck and I'm not making progress. You can look back and say, oh, my gosh. Look where I was just three weeks ago or three months ago and how different things are. So it's a great tool in the moment to help the healing process, but it's also a wonderful tool to help you kind of track how you're healing on your journey. So way too many questions, way, way, way too many, not enough time. But I do want to ask you a question about medication. What are your thoughts about taking medication to ease anxiety, depression, all the symptoms of abuse? I think that... Medication to me is not the final and only answer. Right. Medication to me is a tool that can assist you. If you are so overwhelmed by your experience, it can be hard to even begin doing anything that will be healing. And I think that helping reduce the, that anxiety in the context of, of medical assistance and medical advice, that if you have that worked out specifically for your situation. It makes sense. You can find the right medication. It can get you to a point where you are able to to reduce the anxiety and the fear and the overwhelm that you can actually actively engage in your healing journey. So I write in my book that I personally did not engage in medication. Um, that was a personal choice because of, of what I had seen with other people in my, my life dealing with depression and medication. But I am certainly not saying that's the choice for everyone. I think it's a tool that needs to be evaluated as a potential positive tool in your healing journey. And people need to work with professionals to decide if that makes sense for them. Your book is very clear about all that. <laughs> very, very clear. So individual therapy, you suggest that and you had experience with, I love the steps you have. It's very clear, the, the outline seven steps. So how to find a therapist, the right one for you. And then you also suggest group therapy. And then you have so many self help books, uh, lots of them. You speak about uh, love, the embracing joy part uh, in the book, uh, physical exercise, yoga, meditation. Um, and then I would love for you to talk to me about um, self-expression, the um, contemplative art. That is interesting. That's what you, you, you do too. So contemplative photography practice. Talk to me about that and soul collage too. Sure. So contemplative art come out of the Eastern traditions, uh, Japan predominantly, but also China, with the idea that people recognize things like calligraphy and haiku, maybe flower arranging. There's all these different forms of art that come out of the East that are about a process of how you approach expressing yourself. So it's not the tool that you're using. It's not the brush or so on and so forth. It's really what is the process? You're asking people to be mindful and present and approach this in a very uh, practiced way that you're not going to just kind of slop things down and be loosey-goosey about it. You're actually trying to get rid of any judgments you might have any assumptions, any preconceptions about what the process is about, the, and not focus on the end product. We're, we're wanting to, what is it like to go through a tea ceremony to prepare the tea and put out the cups and do this whole thing as an expression from beginning to end rather than 
I'm going to make some tea and, and drink it. You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's yes. really a mindful way of <laughs> going through the process of expression. And contemplative photography is in that same tradition that we are trying to be present, experience our world directly and be able to make a connection with what we're experiencing. And then the camera just comes in as a tool to take a snap of the experience so that we can capture what that was like and, and potentially share that with people. And what, what's interesting about this approach to art is that inevitably the end product is beautiful because you're fully engaged, you're fully devoted to in the moment what you're creating. And so in the end, it's always this, to me, it's always a beautiful outcome, whether it's a photograph and you can apply this to any kind of practice. You can be very mindful about cooking or sewing or gardening to be fully present and engaged and not mindlessly doing X while your mind is somewhere else doing Y, you know? So it's an approach to how you're doing things while you're being creative. That is really a wonderful experience to, to get you grounded and really appreciative of what you're doing and those experiences that you can allow yourself to have in this approach. Your book also, the chapter 12, you titled Pampering Yourself. I love that too. <laughs> yes. The self-love is self-care. And that's very important. And then to me, it has been like a huge, huge, huge part of it, which everything you speak of has to do with that, not taking care of ourselves, right? Yeah, and I think as a trauma survivors, abuse survivors, we have such a negative self-image. We we really hate ourselves, or at least part of ourselves. I hated my body. I hated who I was and how I felt about myself. And learning to be kind to yourself, to treat yourself as you would someone you really cared about, to bring that back to yourself. What? And I don't have to spend a lot of money. You can get a candle that has this wonderful scent. You can get a bubble bath, whatever it is, flowers that you buy for yourself at the store, anything that you can do to enrich and honor and bring beauty into your life in a personal way to treat yourself and say, hey, I'm worth these wonderful, nice things that I would love to do for someone I care about. Let me do that for myself and just pamper myself and be nice and kind and compassionate instead of these other things that I've done in the past. Yes. Yeah. That makes a huge difference. Yeah. It has been my experience, which makes a lot of sense once we start looking within, seeing that being kind, really. It's being gentle, too, because I see that I noticed that those who have been abused, we tend to be abusive with ourselves very much, as you said, self-hatred and all that. So in that kind of if we don't heal from that, then it becomes something else, which is we become abusers, too. Or, yeah, or we get ourselves into a situation where we're abused again. If we right. learn to pamper ourselves right. and learn to respect ourselves and treat ourselves well, we won't let other people people mistreat us. So part four in your book, you have this um, poetry journal, which you talk a lot about the experiences you went through and so many other beautiful poems. And the one that caught my attention, as I mentioned, is the change poem. So talk to me about the inspiration for that poem. And if you could, I would love for you to read that. Sure. So the poetry is broken into four different parts and each of the parts is a different phase of my healing journey. So you start off with the poems that are about the actual abuse uh, feelings and uh, dealing with that. The poem that you reference is in the fourth uh, or actually the fifth, I guess, um, part of this. And it's in a section called My Heart Dances with the Stars. So it's really about where I am now and after having gone through all of this healing work. So the poem change. How have I changed? 
no longer feeling raw and battered, filled with fear, pain, and resentment, no longer feeling cored out, empty of hope or feelings or love, no longer feeling like a disease-riddled leper, worthless and ashamed, no longer focused on what people see in me, think of me, no longer full of false bravado of F you, Sorry, censored that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Anyway, F you. I didn't care. I don't care what you think because I'm better than you. When I feel the exact opposite inside, how have I changed? Mm. Now Now feeling part of the world, not running from it. Now I don't worry. I never think about what other people see in me or don't. Now feeling confident, proud of me and the freedom I've won. Now feeling happy, joyful, filled with laughter feeling peace, contentment, and love. Now I just live and joy and peace and happiness centered and calm as I go about my life being me. So we're almost at the end. Would you like to add anything or read any other section of the book before I ask you my final questions? Sure. So I think that I'd just like to mention that everyone has an opportunity to make some change in their life. You know, you've had the strength to get through the challenges that have come up in your life and you should recognize that strength and take that to the present and the future that you can find ways to heal from what happened to you, that it is something that happened to you and is not you. And you just need to make a decision that it's time. It's time for you to move forward. And so I do have one poem I like to read. I think it's one of the most powerful ones in it, uh, in the book. It's from an earlier section, but I think that people who are just beginning their healing journey, thinking about starting a healing journey can um, appreciate this. So it's called Seaworthy. My heart is empty, the inside scraped away like a tree being carved into a canoe. Raw wood exposed, all splintery with jagged edges. It will take some time to heal, to sand smooth the rough edges, to add a coat of paint and become seaworthy. Yes, I remember that poem. <laughs> yes, <laughs> going through it. Yeah, wow. You're a beautiful writer, though. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you so much for all your wonderful questions. Uh, It's been beautiful to talk with you about what it is to be human and be creative and the hope, the hope that you focus on and and bring to your listeners. I really appreciate your message about hope and transformation and healing. So thank you for letting me come on and have this conversation. Thank you for the encouragement. (laughs) So my two last questions. What is another word for healing? Living. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Living. Yes. Wow. Forget to live. (laughs) Isn't it interesting? It's like uh, we forget to breathe. It's so basic, isn't it? That's why we're here. My last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment? Oh, you're asking the tough ones at the end, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I saved them. life. Life is full of love. That's for sure. That's one thing I know. Life is full of love. Yeah. One thing I know for sure is I deserve to be the, the most authentic, beautiful person I can, that I can give that to myself and to the world. Yeah. And that I believe everyone is strong enough to find a way to that. Mm. That's what I know. 
Yes, yeah. <clears throat> I do know that too. If there's something to be known, yeah, that's a very good way of saying. I love your clarity. I love your wisdom. I love your compassion, generosity. It is just beautiful. And you really, really embody the strength of what is to be a human being, Denise. It can be felt, not just heard, but felt. Thank you for that. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? So the best place is my website, thrivingaftersexualabusebook.com. You can learn more about me and the book. You can find uh, the list of healing books that I have, my healing library. And there's links there to all the places you can buy the book, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple, etc. I am on social media. So on Facebook, it's Thriving After Sexual Abuse. Twitter is I Am Thriving After. And on Instagram, it's Me To Heal. I'll have your website on the podcast profile. That link will be there. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Blessings. Bye for now, Denise. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Denise Bossart and her work, please visit thrivingaftersexualabusebook.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.